combining programming and math and science with art and design and interactivity. Welcome to episode six of Bringing Art and Technology Together. My name is Ryan Price, and after many technical difficulties, I can join you here today on the internet and tell you all about some cool things that are going on in the world of creativity, where 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 you meet entrepreneurial creatives, not creative entrepreneurs. Did I say that? I don't know. I told that I told that to. Uh, the person we have on as our guest a couple weeks ago, and he said, that sounds about right. But before I get to the guest, I want to make sure that I introduce uh, my co-host, Catherine Neal, who is sitting about an hour away from me in uh, New Smyrna Beach, Edgewater, Florida. Hello. And uh, it actually got chilly in Florida this week. What happened? I don't know, but I don't like it. I want to send it away. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. And then we are looking to have uh, interesting guests doing cool creative projects for you, the listeners, to get exposed to new stuff, get inspired. And the inspirational person we have on today is an artist and a computer programmer, Nathan Selikoff. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. And thank you for introducing me as an inspirational person. That's very kind. Well, you are, (laughs) you, for me, you're the kind of person whose job I wish I could have. Essentially, <laughs> Nathan, and I'll, I'll intro you, but you can maybe clarify, you do art professionally, and you, for the most part, your income comes from creative projects and not necessarily doing client work like myself. Yeah, I mean, it really depends on the, the time of year and the season and what's going on. But yeah, I have a professional fine arts practice as I guess the the proper way to say it meaning that I've been exhibiting my fine art in galleries and festivals and various venues for about a decade and um, as part of that I sell my fine art and I apply for and sometimes get grants um, and do residencies and uh, various things like that to help support my career and throughout that time I have done various types of client work and even sometimes had to have uh, full-time or close to full-time jobs to help pay the bills. So currently I have moved most of my freelance work closer to the types of things that I do as an artist and programmer, which is nice because that way the the client work can feed into the artwork and vice versa. Yeah, awesome. And like me, you went through the, the digital media program at, at UCF, right? Yeah, uh, to a certain extent. I, I was at UCF doing my undergraduate degree from 99 to 04. And I actually began as a computer science major because there were some scholarships, including some money to buy a computer and some other 
things like that that uh, drew me into that as a starting point. And I stayed in computer science until I passed the, I think they call it the foundation exam, which allows you to take some upper division classes, which is what I was really interested in, graphics programming and things like that. Um, and once that happened and I was looking at the rest of the major, at that point in time I was really not interested in things like database design and uh, operating systems and things like that. So at that point I switched to digital media. And I was in digital media for a semester only, actually, uh, because I started to run into some politics regarding digital media students being allowed to take fine art classes. And instead of trying to fight against that uh, system, so to speak, I just decided to become an art major <laughs> yeah. and kind of, you know, round out the circle and, and take the art classes that I wanted, the digital media classes that I wanted, and the computer science classes that I wanted to kind of, you know, propel me forward. So I ended up with a BFA from the art department specializing in computer animation and in modern computer science and a sprinkling of other things in there from from digital media yeah this is a little inside baseball but at that time digital media was a very new program at the school at many exactly. schools really um it was this new new thing and web 2.0 was coming around and you know everybody was trying to like hurry up and have their answer to the next generation of of de degree programs but computer animation for the schools that had it was still considered art right that was yeah, that's like absolutely the, the right. The, the digital media programs, these kind of crossover programs, were pretty fledgling and did not exist in many different schools. And you had, so you had computer science departments that had computer graphics programs, you know, that tended to be more technical. And you had art departments that had uh, animation programs that originally were uh, traditional animation programs and then moved into computer animation as, as tools like you know, Maya and 3D Studio Max and things like that became more used in, in industry. Um, so they were approaching it more from an artistic point of view. And then digital media came in and said, well, there are these people that are not really computer scientists and they're not really artists. What are they? They're both, you know, they're hybrids and they're looking for something that's a little bit different. We're going to try and make that thing that they're looking for. Yeah. And we've had, you know, almost 10 years since you got out of school now, so uh, you've been doing some pretty interesting stuff, but I guess I want to make sure I give Ch Catherine a chance to chime in at this point. I think all the most interesting stuff happens when you have that point of, as you said, hybridization, where where things start crossing over, but it also seems to be the point which schools and, and industry gets really, really confused and doesn't know what to do with people. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, that's, been, that's been my experience. Um, I, think it would, I think it would be best if they would just leave the creatives alone to figure it out on their own, but they always seem to want to stick their fingers in and try to do something official with them, but it never seems to work out. They should just leave us alone and let us figure <laughs> it out, and we'll get back to them with how it works. No, but they never do. But, you know, what are you going to do? But something interesting always comes out of it. Yeah, yeah. I'm... I'm very much interested in that line between disciplines and that area where you're kind of tapping into different worlds and, and bringing those worlds together, which is why I like doing what I do, you know, combining, combining programming and math and science with art and design and interactivity. 
Well, yeah, because, I mean, really, it's sort of a creative estuary. Mm, and you have like the that. most... You have you have the most interesting things happening there, and oftentimes you get you know like in any biological estuary, you you tend to get a certain richness to what happens there. Yes, I, I like I like that, that river. I like the the river metaphor, the water metaphor as well. I use that sometimes with uh, uh -huh. confluence. I I sometimes talk uh -huh. about the the confluence of different disciplines that have come together to kind of enable someone like me to do these types of projects. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, I also have a piece that's called Alluvial Fan, and sometimes I, I show that at the beginning of a talk and talk about how the different branches of the, the river come together or how the larger river spills out into the alluvial fan, uh, into the delta, into the estuary, um, and kind of the mixing of those, you know, different disciplines. Right. So, Nathan, I think... At this point, it, it might be good for people that are listening, if they don't know um, what kind of work you do, what some of your pieces look like. Maybe we could talk about that really quick. I have a bunch of questions I want to ask you. Yeah, for somebody absolutely. who's never heard of Nathan Selikoff, like what you you definitely have a, a characteristic couple of, of little motifs that you work with, and one of them is being these like parametric equations that you then render out onto 2D surfaces or interactive installations. So let's can we talk about that a little bit. Sure, sure. Yeah, so I mean, if, you know, when people eventually go to my website and look at, at things, they'll see that there is quite a, you know, variety of, of work. But as you mentioned, I do have this one series that, um, that I've called Aesthetic Explorations of a Tractor Space um, or just Aesthetic Explorations. And really that's based on, these particular math equations uh, that create these mathematical forms called strange attractors. And visually what that looks like um, is kind of like a chaotic particle system. Um, you end up getting these colorful abstract images that sometimes look like dropping ink in water or uh, see-through fabric waving in the wind or different, you know, smoke and gas and clouds and different natural phenomena like that, but they're all, they all have their root in uh, mathematical equations. So I've played with those, and, and my fascination with those has been based on um, kind of that idea of uh, complex imagery from simple equations, uh, so the relationship between simplicity and complexity, uh, and also kind of the partnership between myself as the artist and the computer as both a tool a uh, creative tool and a contributor to the outcome uh, and kind of the, the give and take between the artists and the medium. Uh, in this case, you know, the math and the computer have a, a large say in what gets drawn to the screen. And, and so my role becomes more of like um, exploring this infinite space of, of possibilities, of visual possibilities and kind of selecting and refining from there. Um, I've, I've also done a lot of, in the last couple of years, I've done a lot of sculptures uh, out of cardboard, recycled mm -hmm. cardboard, and those those kind of had a, a birth out of a virtual uh, interactive installation that I did called the Society of Stick People. But um, if you, uh, for people who happen to be in the Orlando area, they might have seen my, my giant cardboard stick people either outside or in puppet form uh, at the Mini Maker Fair or at the Cardboard Art Festival last year. Um, and then kind of the last big area 
uh, of work that I do is audiovisual performances, where I'm working with musicians and creating uh, live visuals that are shown during a, a musical performance. So I did a large one with the Orlando Philharmonic uh, about a year and a half ago, and I've done a, a few other concerts with a friend of mine, uh, Will Smith, who lives in Brooklyn, um, who is an organist and a composer. Yeah, definitely. You have you have a you know pretty. It's it's weird to say diverse because probably a certain person looking at it would go, oh, uh, he just plays with the computers all day. But then, it from knowing what I know, that that's very diverse. Playing with music, playing with two dimensional art, and playing with you know physical sculpture, and then playing with interactive. Those are like you know four very very different things that you could spend years of your life mastering one and working on a project of sculpture and many people do so yes. you know uh kudos that's what i have to say <laughs> thank you um it's you know it's not it's not always considered a an, an asset uh for that to be what is described of you as a fine artist uh spe- especially in the traditional art world um galleries and museums and such tend to want to see uh what they would call more focused uh, approach to art making. So that can be a hindrance sometimes. But uh, for me, you know, it's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a project-based practice where, you know, an opportunity will come along or an idea will come along and I'll, I'll work on that as kind of a, a project. And, yeah, I don't, I don't want to be limited to doing a specific kind of work and I certainly don't want to become known as, oh, he's the guy who does strange attractors, or he's the guy who does this one very niche-specific thing, because my ideas are much broader than that. But it does mean that sometimes I have to be careful about how I present my work, especially if I'm applying for a grant or, or talking to a gallery director. Well, don't you think the other issue, too, is the fact that if you work more broadly, sometimes you end up in a place that's much more interesting? And you end up not being quite so derivative of other artists. You know, you don't end up. You end up someplace that's much more um, original. It's certainly possible. I mean, we could talk about originality and and kind of you know what does it really look like or mean to be original in a world where we're exposed to right. so many ideas and and the likelihood of having an original idea is is maybe slim to none, but. It's certainly the way that I prefer to work, and I think that's an important question for people to consider, regardless of what career you're talking about. Is like, what? How do you want your professional life structured? Like, do you? How do you work well? If you work well, moving from project to project and having that diversity of experience, then you should try and pick something that's going to support that in you versus something that you're going to go to and do the same thing day after day and it's going to, you know, numb your mind and your spirit. Yeah. One one thing I always like to ask people, especially, you know, in kind of your position is, what do you tell your grandmother that you do? Or <laughs> you know, uh, one of those some some person you meet in an elevator like, "Oh, what's your job?" Yeah. My grandmother is actually super supportive. She's 93 and we're going to go visit her later this week for Thanksgiving, which I'm really looking forward to because I don't get to see her that often. Uh, but she she reads my email newsletters and often replies back to me and says that I think in her latest reply she used the phrase my my mind is blown at all of the different things that you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the 
the phrase that I usually start out with when I'm meeting people and I don't know what their background is, is just to say I'm a visual artist and a programmer. And by saying those two things in the same sentence, um, I can then kind of gauge people's reaction to that idea of being both of those things because for the vast majority of people, they don't think of uh, those disciplines coexisting within one person, at least on a professional level. Maybe it's hobbies, you know, one or the other is hobbies. But most people are surprised. It's kind of like saying, you know, I go to a conference over the summer that has to do with art and math. Yeah. And for most people, those two things are, uh, in their mind, they're so wide apart from each other that they they can't even imagine a couple hundred people getting together and discussing that topic, topic those two topics. Yeah. Th- this is definitely a theme on our show. Let's, I'm just going to say that, you know, we, we're, we're trying to find people who have their feet in two different rivers um, to continue the water metaphor. And uh, <laughs> I, I hope, I hope that, uh, you know, we can keep, keep the pace up and, and I hope my dogs don't think that anybody else scary is at the front door <laughs> too, too often. Um, oh, and he's so thirsty. The beauties of working from home. Yes, yes, yes. indeed. So yeah, we're trying. We're trying to find the the genre busting people. As far as you know, genre busting people. I I think that more and more we're looking for people that work outside of the the idea of specialization, um, because really the we discovered with Urban Rethink that really the most interesting ideas seemed to come when we had people from really diverse backgrounds who came together even though they wouldn't think about it normally. Um, the best ideas came from people from really diverse backgrounds who came together and suddenly they, they had the most amazing ideas or came up with the most amazing projects to work on and stuff. and uh, or or you know, like Nathan, you know, art, fine arts and programming, you know, uh, people people get pretty interesting, you get pretty re- interesting reactions to that. Um, you know, I for me it was when people found out I was a scientist and a poet. It's like, you know, <laughs> the attitudes of how can such things exist in the same body and your head not explode? Right. You know, it's like, well, actually it is possible, you know. In a world of specialization, you know, the general there is a place for the generalist, and for people who have who have more Da Vincian approaches to things. Um, and there I, definitely is, and I'll tell you some some things that I've observed uh, from interacting with people who kind of fall into this large net of genre busting personalities, and this kind of goes back to the. The conference that my wife and, go, and I go to—that's—that's uh, that's called the Bridges Conference, Bridges Art Map—and there's always a number of amazingly intelligent people at this conference who have accomplished remarkable things and been recognized for them to the degree to which you might meet a person who has won a MacArthur Genius Award at the conference, but the commonality with all of these people, and I think this has something to do with with being cross-disciplinary, is that they're also remarkably fun to hang out with and easy to talk to and humble and not really lording over their incredible intelligence on anyone. 
I think there's something about having your feet in multiple worlds and being engaged in multiple disciplines that puts you in a place where you're you don't get so hyper focused on your your own little slice of the world um, that you become you know proud or haughty or inaccessible because of that. Yeah, I I mean I think if you if if you're the kind of person that doesn't have a traditional job description, you have to be humble enough to admit when you don't know something, mm. and and that that humility of saying, well, can you tell me why or you know, uh, can you know, like let's talk about other ways of doing this. Like, just because this is the conventional way, does that mean we have to do it this way? You have to, you have to be around people who have sort of a, a, a malleable personality. Hmm. You know, the the really the really hard and fast people are probably not very good collaborators. They might be good at giving orders. They might be the the, the creative visionary type, the Steve Jobs. But maybe not necessarily the 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 ultimate collaborator. They right. might enable other people to do so by having a vision that you know breaks some boundary. But I don't know. That's my thought anyway. Yeah, I'm reminded of the Einstein quote about he's the that he said he wasn't he doesn't didn't consider himself particularly smart, just passionately curious. And I think that's sort of the oh, hallmark. Cool. You know, I think that's really the hallmark of people who are, you know, multidisciplinarian is they're just passionately curious and so they don't get into this thing of having to be the expert or the big brain in the room or whatever because it's more, you know, having that childlike interest in multiple things. Yeah, I love that quote. That's that's brilliant. Yeah. So, Nathan, one of the things I wonder about is, did you have, I mean, I think a lot of people do have, but did you have, like, a, a transitional period where you were still trying to figure out how you could be, you know, a professional artist? And, and did you ever have to, you know, work at a restaurant? Or were you <laughs> always kind of able to, you know, find gigs here and there? And, I mean, I know you've said you've done some, you know, professional coding work. Like, it's good to have a sort of a, a recession-proof skill like that, I guess. Right. Yeah. No. I, in some ways, in a lot of ways, I, I feel like I'm still trying to find the right mix of income sources and trying to find the right way to structure my career so that it will be financially sustainable. I think I'm in a better place now than I was, you know, five years ago, and certainly than I was uh, right after college. Uh, but yeah, I, I've worked a lot of different jobs. Um, most of them, fortunately, have been at least tangentially related to programming and/or art in some fashion. But I've I've worked at um, a research lab over in the UCF area, University of Central Florida, where they're doing a lot of uh, kind of research and simulation and training. I have worked for. Uh, a fine artist is kind of an artist apprentice doing everything from helping her mix paints and hang her work to working on graphic design projects with her. I have done my own stint as a uh, small business graphic designer and web designer and developer on a freelance basis. I even worked for Arabian Nights, which is a, a dinner theater here in Central Florida, and I, I worked on a video game with them for a little while and then eventually became the director of web development there for a couple of years. Hmm. 
so yeah, I've 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 done a wide variety of things to to pay the bills, and um, depending on different points in my life, I've needed more or less money. Um, you know, getting married and buying a house is an expensive period of life. <laughs> Um, being a being a bachelor um, before being married and living in a big house with a bunch of guy friends is a less expensive period of life. So there's lots of factors. Yeah, it's an ongoing process, though. One thing I've found extremely helpful uh, as a visual artist or as a it, kind of figuring this stuff out has been a bunch of learning opportunities provided through an organization that you guys have talked about, I believe, called Creative Capital Foundation. So they run uh, professional development workshops for artists all over the country, and they've done a number of these in Florida, and I've been to a number of them, and they've been extraordinarily helpful in filling in the gaps of knowledge that I've had in terms of how to manage my time, manage my money, work with various people in the, in the fine art world, uh, build relationships and connections, figure out what I want to do, set goals, be strategic, all, all those kinds of things. Cool. Yeah, it's it's good to hear that uh, the resources exist, and you're not you know just floundering in the dark. I mean, there are plenty of people that improvise their way into you know profitable situations. I saw I saw a review of a book that must have come out recently about this person went around the world and he found 1,500 people that are earning more than $50,000 a year off of some nascent skill that they have, and it's basically trying to promise you that. Like you can make an income off of just being you, and I think there's a little bit of snake oil in that. But there yeah. are at least fifteen hundred people that are doing it according to the review of this book. So you know, there's that like weird line of just because someone can do it doesn't mean anyone can do it, but mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that you can't try. Right. Absolutely. It is. It's a. It's a really fine line, and it's hard to. It's really hard to balance that optimism with the realism and I I think there is a certain amount of snake oil in that idea that things will just kind of work out for you regardless of what you want to do at the same time a lot of people do give up and settle for things that they're not happy with because of various reasons like either just lack of knowledge or fear or different things like that I think it's important to if you're in school or a certain discipline, uh, particularly art, and you're studying art, and if the, if the school that you're at is not, does not include some kind of professional development component in your education, if they're not asking you questions like, how are you going to support yourself as a, as a fine artist, and, and the only kind of assumption there is that, oh, I'm just going to be able to make my art, and someone will find me and make me famous, and that's how that's the only way that it works, then that's a worse kind of snake oil than the possible one that we're talking about where uh, you become maybe overly optimistic and not realistic enough. I think it's I think it's really important to learn how to conduct yourself as a as a entrepreneurial creative or yeah. Uh, as as other people have said, you know, an art entrepreneur I've seen used before that kind of conjunction of artist and entrepreneur. You know, I, I've been paying a lot of attention to the video game world lately, and it's interesting to see that there's like this very clear division between studio games and 
indie games, and the indie games are like made by one person to maybe a maximum of four or six people, but no, none of them is full time. And and then you have the opposite, where like two hundred people worked on a game, and that was just the people that worked on it full time, not counting mm-hmm. the testers and the business people and all the support staff and the lawyers and the you know whoever else is there. So there's there's now starting to be this almost maturity in that industry where you've got the like mega blockbuster and the, and the micro indie, but there's no school to teach you how to be an indie game programmer. It's mm-hmm. like the school of hard knocks, and if you can make one successful game, then theoretically you could make more. You know, there's there's even a documentary about this. It's called Indie Game the Movie, and they're basically following these guys who, the one lives with his mom, and the one you know eats ramen noodles every day. And if they didn't have the, this particular kind of support structure, they would have had to do something drastically different. Yeah, a long, long, long I mean, time ago. Right. Let's I mean, let's be clear that in the day and age in that we're living, where the internet gives us access to a much of the world, that the possibility of being able to do your own project on a micro level and have it supported and build from there is better than ever. You know, we're living in an amazing time to kind of take seeds of ideas and build them up slowly um, and find the people that are willing to part with their time or their money or their attention to help support what you want to do. It's a great time to be alive to do that type of thing. But indeed, you there's work that goes along with that and there's knowledge transfer that needs to happen um, for people to know to learn how to do those things. I mean, it's all things that you can learn. It's just somebody's got to teach you, or you've got to go out and, and learn that stuff. Yeah. So Nathan, in one of the, one of the things that you've done is you are hosting a meetup in Orlando. It's uh, processing Orlando, but it's not just necessarily a processing programming language class, right? That is correct. Yeah. Earlier this year, I started the group called Processing Orlando, and it's basically for artists, musicians, architects, any kind of creative person that uh, has any inkling of desire to learn about coding and programming and kind of what those disciplines can do intersecting with their artistic or creative discipline. So we're currently meeting bi-monthly, and sometimes we'll do workshop-style meetings where people can bring their laptops and learn the basics of programming or learn some other thing, kind of follow along even if they're a complete beginner. And other times we'll bring in speakers to talk about the work that they're doing. So recently we had a computer science PhD candidate come in and talk about artificial intelligence and music and kind of her research around the idea of of creating music accompaniment tracks to music that you compose yourself using genetic algorithms in the computer. (laughs) So there's, yeah, it's a very wide kind of range of, of, of topics, but the main idea is to, to start to provide a place for people in central Florida who are interested in the intersection of, of art and tech um, in a loose sense to come together to build that community, uh, to learn things, to kind of get exposed to a lot of the things that folks like us really are aware of. But I think there's kind of some you know nascent demand for this in Orlando. Cool, very cool. Yeah, the music and artificial intelligence one was really great, and um, hopefully we'll be able to get Amy. Amy Hoover. 
Amy Hoover. Hopefully we'll yes. get her on on a future episode. I did talk to her after the the meetup. Yeah, so I will mention, since we're talking about this, the next processing-related event is actually... I'm. It's not an official processing event, but I am going to be teaching a beginning intro to processing class in association with the Orlando SIGGRAPH chapter and uh, Brian Wilson's Smart Maker Lab, oh, yeah. which is kind of a new fledgling hackerspace, on December 9th from 6.30 to 8.30 at Smart Maker. Cool. And we haven't worked out all the details of that, but basically it's going to be an intro to creative computing or creative coding kind of a deal. So one more thing I want to ask before we wrap it up is where's the fountain of knowledge for Nathan Selikoff? Like do you read blogs? Do you watch videos? Do you is there a magazine or a journal that, you know, people might want to subscribe to that's got cool stuff? I mean, obviously going to like the SIGGRAPH conventions is great, but costs thousands of dollars. Oh yeah, yeah. Um a few definitely have a few that I can recommend. Those are some of my favorites. There's something called the Creators Project, yeah. which is a partnership between Intel and, and Vice, and they are covering lots of really interesting things in the intersection of art and technology. They're, they also commission new work sometimes. You've also got Creative Applications Network, which is creativeapplications.net, uh, which is a really excellent blog for people who are, are doing things. This it kind of ranges from interactive installations, to software art, to games, to, I don't know, all sorts of things. Uh, recently, I went up to the Leaders in Software and Art Conference in New York City, and they've put all of their videos from that one-day conference online on YouTube. Uh, so that's a good resource. Also, a few other conferences that happen in the United States that are really interesting are the IO Festival. They record all of their videos and put them freely available on Vimeo. And they're incredibly inspiring. And they started a new a new conference called Instint, which is inst-int.com. And it's more focused on interactive installation. So I anticipate being able to see uh, the videos from that conference online within the next couple months as well. Very cool. All right. I think at this point, we just want to make sure that people know how to find you uh, online. So you have a personal website and stuff like that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's NathanSelikoff.com, and I'll spell my last name. It's Russian. <laughs> S-E-L-I-K-O-F-F. So NathanSelikoff.com. And from there, you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, Google+. You can find a link to the Processing Orlando group, to my freelance site, and to my online store for prints and various things oh, like and that. Oh, and your Leap Motion application. I, I want to oh, yeah, we didn't that. get to talk yeah. about that. It's um, called Beautiful Chaos. We'll have to talk about that more sometime. But, yeah, it's right up, up front and center on my website. It's, a, it's actually in the app store for the Leap Motion controller in the experimental category. So if you have a Leap Motion controller and you want to interact with some of my artwork, you can do so for only $1.99. So if somebody's never heard of the Leap, it's it's essentially a little device you plug into your computer and it adds this minority report style interaction to your desktop, right? You can wave your hands over it, it knows where your fingers are and mm-hmm. it knows where objects are. That's a good are. description. So um if you've ever wanted to you know to add minority report to one of your projects, um it's like a ninety nine dollar or seventy nine dollar device. Seventy nine dollars. Yeah. You can and, pick it up online or at Best Buy. And then for an extra, what is it, 2 or $3, you can get Nathan's 
Yeah, $2 for my app. They've got their own app store, kind of like, you know, the iTunes app store that, in general, the software has to be designed to work with the Leap Motion controller. Although there are some apps that allow interaction with software that's not specifically designed for the controller. But yeah, you're going to start seeing this kind of gesture-driven technology incorporated into laptops and smartphones within the next five years for sure. And HP already has announced the laptop model that has the Leap Motion controller embedded in the actual laptop. Well, yeah, I know I've seen some too where they say that they've got eye tracking built into the laptop, but those a lot of times are for researchers and not necessarily for just average people. Mm -hmm. But that, that I think could be really interesting. Like, you know, now there's a cell phone that has eye tracking and it will scroll the page down automatically if you look down. And the first time I ever picked one up, I was like, why is there an eyeball on the screen? And then the page (laughs) moved and I hadn't touched anything. I said, oh, oh, wow. I'm in some sort of science fiction book. What just happened? (laughs) (laughs) So they're out there and it's on a phone. Like it's so weird that that the the new stuff is coming to the phones faster than the like giant brick laptops and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's good. You know, those. I, I think it was was it last year that mobile devices like phones and tablets overtook desktops and laptops for the primary internet access. Um, exactly. Yeah. 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 So it makes it makes sense. I mean, that's, from that's that what keeps me that in the technologies coming into the phones. That's what keeps me in a job right now is the fact that everybody's scrambling to catch up with mobile internet. So mm-hmm. that's always good. Catherine, do you have anything that you want to plug today? Nothing except uh, Nathan's app uh, for the leap because I have a leap and I have his app for the leap. It's lots of, <laughs> Thank you. It's lots of fun. Thank you. <laughs> cool. One thing I did want to just point out uh it's a it's a book i've been reading this week it's it's interesting it's not my favorite book ever but as far as i know it's one of the only books on the subject it's called extra lives and it is a sort of like a one-man account of his delving into the world of video games he is a professional writer and the guy's name is tom bissell and he one day decided that nobody had ever written like a an emotional account of what happens to you when you're playing a video game and he wanted to do it from this very like authorly perspective and in my in my personal opinion one of the things he does a little too much is he throws in a lot of this colorful language and like metaphors and it's like jumping from there's never been a book about this to now this is the book about it it's kind of <laughs> weird uh but there's a lot of really good points in there, and there's a lot of interesting analysis that I w- I'll have to agree with him, especially I think this book was written about three years ago, maybe, that at the time there wasn't really a lot of people talking about, less about, oh, this game has this feature, but what's happening to me when I play the game? And so one of the ones he walks through is Resident Evil, which is a very classic and like At the time when it came out, it was this very genre-defining, like, brand-new experience and how, you know, no game had ever really done a lot of the things that they were doing there. And he does a lot of modern games. It's all, for the most part, console games. But it's a really interesting... It makes me want to go and play some of these games. Like, I've skipped gaming for about, I don't know, 15 years and kind (laughs) of, like, rediscovering what's happened recently. And uh, there's some things that... Oh, I knew this was a popular game, but I didn't know that it had 
you know, this was one of the first times when you could really customize your character like this, and it was so much more personal because of that. And his main thesis is that games are not treated as art, and there's a lot of argument for why this is art, and, you know, he's trying to do his part for it. So, interesting book. If you've got, you know, for me it was an audible credit. I have an audible credit to to spend on it. I, I picked it up. It's an audiobook. I'm listening to it. And the author reads it himself. Uh, cool. Cool. So that was my that was my thing. Um, Since we got onto a, a bit of a cyborg kick here with the eye tracking phones, oh, yeah. and the, what happens in your mind when you're playing video games? I'll mention one artist that I was introduced to at the conference I just went to in New York City a few weeks ago. Her name is Sophia Bruckner, um, S O P H I A, um, and last name is B R U E C K N E R, and she does she's a professor at MIT Media Lab right now, but she does a wide variety of really interesting work, including uh, a piece called Singing Code, where she sings source code <laughs> as if it were almost like a, a, a chant, like a religious chant. Huh. And she does, she does, she's kind of exploring this idea of I'm kind of becoming a cyborg in my relationship with computers and how have computers really affected me. And I, I found her work pretty beautiful and compelling. Neat. Well, uh, yeah, definitely we will have links to everything that we talked about today, at least as many of the things that I can... Uh, suss out and I may ask Nathan to, to send me some of the stuff if he has specific yeah, links at batideas b-a-t-t-ideas.com and we also have a Google Plus discussion group and we have a Facebook page as well where you can find us and find out some things that uh, Catherine and I are interested in um, in between shows which hopefully we will be having one out in the next two to three weeks we're kind of on a schedule now so that's that's a good thing and I also put up a little video on our Bat Ideas uh, Google Plus page from a project that Catherine and I did. We we took apart an old television, and originally <laughs> we put an old laptop inside of it, and then I couldn't get the laptop to oh, reliably I saw a of that. boot. That really cool. Uh, so I ended up putting in uh, a regular computer monitor and a Raspberry Pi, and now I'm trying to come up with ideas of what to do with that um, in the future. Right now, it's just good for slideshows and watching videos, but it's kind of fun to have this like very old-school Bakelite television with modern technology in it and connected to YouTube. Yeah, <laughs> I saw your photo. That looked really cool. Yeah. I'm looking for something fun to do with that enclosure, and I actually have another little old portable TV I want to stick an iPad into and some other stuff like that. So this is maybe, maybe one day then we get to uh, Nathan level artistic interaction but <laughs> right now i just like taking apart things yeah in the meantime we just take things apart yeah <laughs> uh, i hate to tell you something that's kind of what i do as well <laughs> but well um, in regard to uh cyborging uh at bar camp i was doing a i did a talk on biohacking which apparently was the hit of the show well, and, and hopefully that the video of your talk um services at some point so we can point yeah. people to it because there was a yeah. guy running a video camera for several of the, the Bar Camp Deland presentations. That's um, true. Deland so we'll is a, it's a tiny suburb of Orlando, but they have this really neat private school there at Stetson. And Stetson has a, 
a digital arts program that they have some really good um, instructors there. And the one guy that I didn't realize until I looked him up, he was actually a political science professor that we were yeah. talking to. Bill, Bill is a political science professor and Mike is a computer science professor. So, but, um, so it was, it was neat to have that like other for, for us, you know, so many things in Orlando are about EA and these like Disney and, you know, kind of like military research and stuff, but it's, it's cool to go to the suburbs and see what, you know, other people are working on too. Yep. Yeah. Stetson's been doing interesting things in that area for a long, long time. I remember even seeing some of that stuff when I was looking at uh, going, you know, initially going to UCF. Cool. All right. Well, um, Nathan Selikoff, thanks very much for coming on the show. Thank you guys so much. It was an honor and a privilege. All right. And we will see you soon, I'm sure. Yeah, check out more of our podcasts if you want to and please subscribe if you if you find a listing of our podcast somewhere we'd be very happy if you left a rating or shared a link to this podcast with one of your artsy or nerdy friends yeah get the word out we we want to know what you think and we're always looking for feedback and suggestions of things that other people might want to hear about so thanks for listening this has been bring art and technology together podcast bye bye Bye. <laughs> and now I play some sort of weird public domain song. That's that's how we do it. And out.